0: Lord, as we, as we meditate on this passage from Colossians, uh, this instruction to slaves and masters, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that, you would, that your spirit would burrow down into our hearts and help us to reflect on, Lord, uh, how we approach work and, Lord, that you would, as Jonathan said, Lord, move into that area of our lives as well, that we might, in every area of our lives, be built upon your love and, and Lord, be operating, and living out of your promises. And we pray in the name of our Savior and all God's people said, amen. So therapists know that oftentimes when they're counseling a couple, the key thing is, is to find that subject the couple doesn't want to talk about and to go there. Okay, that's, I, that's what I've heard. I'm not a therapist, but I have way too many therapist friends. I know some of you are wondering about that. Don't wonder about it. Yeah, I am. I'm in need of therapy. We all are. Let's just confess it. But they, they know that, you know, you find that spot where they don't want to talk and you go there. Well, the same thing is kind of true. I found as a pastor, oftentimes when I'm talking to somebody, if there's some passage in the Bible that really bothers them, I know that if they can work through that a little bit, there's actually a power that can be released. Uh, But you have to, you know, first off, you have to let go of your reservations and actually begin to rethink that passage. C.S. Lewis in The Way to Glory actually talks about this, how he, he comes across the whole, the whole uh, essay, The Way to Glory, is built on him puzzling over something that's really troubling him, and he's, he wants to maybe just revise it or just throw it out the window, and he finally wrestles with it, and he actually just has this explosive insight. Well, this morning, I want to look at something that it's going to trouble us. It should trouble us. It's going to give us pause, but I feel like if we wrestle with it, if we deal with it, there's actually some power in it that can change our lives. And to not, you know, this morning I have a really easy uh, sermon outline. It's two points, uh, but then I'm going like, to, like pastors do, I'm actually going to pack a bunch of content under those two points so I don't get too excited. But there's only two points, so there's, there you go. Uh, the first one is we're going to look at the repellent. What is the thing that bothers us in this passage in Colossians, okay? And then we're going to look at the revelation. You know, what does it reveal that is actually transformative? So that's where we're going, two points. Uh, a two-point sermon. Is it okay to have a two-point sermon? That seems kind of sacrilegious. But a two-point sermon, that's where we're going this morning. All right, let's talk about the repellent. And the repellent is pretty easy, and it's right off the bat in our text. Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. And to modern ears, this raises red flags immediately. Uh, Why in the world is Paul encouraging this kind of response Why is he encouraging this institution? What in the world is Paul doing? Why doesn't Paul just start off and say, slavery is wrong? If you're a slave, get away. If you're a master, stop it. It's wrong. Why doesn't he do that? And of course, a lot of people throw out the Bible. I've heard more than one person say, well, the Bible teaches slavery. And it's morally opprobrious. It's morally degraded. Like, why would you follow the Bible? Now, that's a, that's a very unsophisticated response. Probably a more sophisticated response would be to say, well, what Paul's saying here seems to be out of sync with so many other things in the Bible. You know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and making your neighbor your slave doesn't really love them, so what in the world's going on? Or, or even passages in like uh, the Old Testament, like Exodus 21, 16, which says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. This is Clearly an anti-slavery law, you know, and you think about what happened in the Americas, right, with, with the African slave trade, I mean, uh, clearly breaking this law, right? So why in the world does Paul, who is a teacher of the law, Paul, who claims that he's met Jesus personally, who said, love your neighbors yourself, like, why in the world is Paul saying this to slaves and masters? That's what I want to look at this morning, this particular repellent. And I want to start off by saying it's easy for us, when we come to passages like this, to play the armchair quarterback. It's just a natural impulse. And I don't know how many of you like to be the armchair quarterback. I love being the armchair quarterback. The nice thing about being the armchair quarterback is you actually can just walk right in, you know, and you can see something take place, like the replay. Maybe we're just watching the news, and you go, oh, that's stupid. He should not, you know, why in the world did he do a run? He should have done a pass. And just, it's snap judgment, it's just, it's cathartic, you know, and, and so, uh, but the problem with the armchair quarterback is you actually are not there. You actually don't know what the quarterback is facing at the ground level. You actually don't know the play that the quarterback had called. You don't, actually don't know the opponent like the quarterback has studied the opponent. You actually don't have the same kind of skin in the game and you're not making decisions in real time. And so while it's easy for us... To move into snap judgments when we read passages like this, we have to be careful because it's very easy just to sit there and call the shots when you have not just a distance between a TV screen, but the distance of thousands of years. That's a big distance. And on this side of the African slave trade, it's very hard for us to see the situation that Paul is actually facing. So what I want to do is I want to take a closer look at the situation that Paul is facing when he tells slaves to obey their masters. So let's talk a little bit about Greco-Roman slavery. And the key point here is that Greco-Roman slavery is not the same thing as the kind of slavery that came to the Americas in the 18th and 19th century. Greco-Roman slavery was very different. First of all, it was not based on race, not at all. Secondly, it wasn't for a lifetime. Most slaves only were slaves until they were 30. Third, most slaves were prisoners of war. So you had these prisoners of war, and while some countries would just kill them, that's, you know, that was one response in, in the ancient world, another response was you would take those prisoners of war, and then you would make them slaves until they were about 30, and it's, it's, you know, that's what was going on. I'm not saying it's great, but that's kind of what was happening. There was not a kidnapping, not a systematic kidnapping taking place. And and, and then finally, if we want to understand, or not finally, but one of the things that's really important is we need to understand that that there was actually a very different kind of thing going on with slaves when it came to uh, the way the slaves understood themselves and their relationship to each other. You know, calls for slaves to unite in the face of their oppressors would have fallen on deaf ears in the Roman Greco Greco world, And, and this is why. One historian writes, despite the clear distinctions between owners and slaves, like, you know, they didn't get paid the same, (laughs) uh, persons in slavery did not constitute a different social or economic class. Let that sit in for a second. Did not constitute a different social or economic class. Slaves, social status, their lifestyle, their economic opportunities, even their education were tied to the status of their respective masters, and they developed no recognizable consciousness of being a group or of suffering... A common plight. So if you were to call out, slaves of the world, let's reunite, go against the man, they wouldn't even heard that. So if we wanted Paul to call out something like that, it actually wouldn't have worked. It would have been, I mean, from our vantage point, maybe that seems like a good idea, but, but it wouldn't have worked. Um, and so uh, there, there is um, legal reform that was taking place. Another one, there's legal reform that was taking place during Paul's day. And that legal reform gave slaves the opportunity to earn their freedom and so things were kind of moving in ways, right? Um, And so, and actually slaves could make a charge against their master and bring them to court. Uh, And and here's the final one, and this is is one that when you hear this you kind of go, oh, oh that's really different. A lot of people, not all people, but a, a good number of people actually in order to have security in the Roman Empire would actually become slaves. It was a form of job security. So when you hear that, you go, oh, this is, this is different. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that makes the institution of Greco-Roman slavery a great thing. But what I am saying is that there is a great difference between the brutal, virulent, violent nature of the American slave trade and what was taking place in the Greco-Roman world. It was not that same kind of monolithic, terrible, horrible thing that we see. It's, it's a little more complex. So I'm trying to give you some texture of what Paul's doing on the field when he's, when, he's, when he's moving. So, but I want to go a little farther, because what I'm saying is more than just simply that Paul had a more difficult and complex situation than just simply, you know, the brutality and violence of the American slave trade. I want to even say even a little more, Paul actually does challenge it. But he challenges it in a way that a lot of our kind of social media, virtue signaling kind of hearts, (laughs) you know, don't get. Uh, Paul's doing something far, far more subversive. Paul is setting up slavery for failure. He has a long game in mind, not the short game. Paul is setting up slavery for failure. You know, when Paul is speaking to these Christians in Colossae, uh, he's not speaking to them by way of a position statement on the structures of Greco-Roman society, okay? What Paul is doing is Paul is writing a letter to real people that he knows, and he's answering a very practical question, how do I live within my household, family household, Roman household? And so what am I going to do tomorrow morning? What should I do? So the big picture, of like how do I challenge the great systems of, the, like Paul's not even doing that. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do, but um, Paul is not doing that. Paul is actually addressing a group of Christians, and we have to remember that these Christians are, they are actually a very, very uh, insignificant group in the Roman Empire at this time. Christianity is, it's it's never actually spread through the world and become this kind of powerhouse. Uh, It's not the number one religion. They are actually a very insignificant group, and they're illegal. That's, that's pretty insignificant when you're illegal. That's kind of hard to kind of, you know, be a heavyweight. Um, so for Paul to kind of like call down fire on Roman, greco Roman slavery would be just stupid because it would be a form of seditious fanaticism undermining 60 million slaves, which are part of the fabric of the economy, and all it would do is just make him even more wanted and killed. Paul has a long game, and Paul is more subversive. And he's more practically, more practical, and his subversiveness. And here's what Paul is going to do. Instead of making some kind of broad statement, uh, he's actually addressing a personal situation. But Paul is undermining that slavery, the Greco-Roman slavery. And here's how he does it. He goes for the heart of it. He goes to what the French sociologist Bordeaux would say, the habitus, the, the internal logic that undergirds the practice of slavery. He's going, he, has a, he has a longer game than just reforming the empire. He wants to reform all relationships for all time at the core, where you have kind of the oppressive master and the slave. And some of you might think, like, yeah, I relate to that within my job, okay? So, Paul is actually, in, in effect, Paul is actually addressing something in a cosmic and deeper and more profound level. Um, And so he is getting rid of the hidden... He's approaching the hidden assumptions and expectations that even make Greco-Roman slavery possible. Now, many ancient writers wrote household codes, and they would always be written to the master. But what does Paul do? Here's how Paul goes about it. He spends time not addressing the master. He spends time addressing the slaves. That right there was like a complete shift, okay? And he's addressing the slaves. He addresses them first in our text... He addresses them the longest and he treats them with dignity. He treats them as if they are responsible agents. So, usually, uh, in these household codes, you would just simply say, You're the master of the house. You just tell the women and the children and the slaves what to do. Their opinion doesn't matter. Paul goes through in his household codes, and Pastor Josh talked about this, and he addresses every single group as agents. And then Paul goes farther. When he finally does speak to the masters, he talks in a way that just would not make sense to how they even understood slavery. Paul says to the masters they need to treat their slaves justly and fairly and with respect. And then he adds this, because God is no respecter of persons. And that is shorthand for saying, before God, everyone is equal. Okay, now let me just drop a little piece of political theology in here. The way in which societies organize themselves, okay, whether they're Christian or not Christian or whatever, ultimately reflects some kind of immaterial order that the society comes to believe in, okay, whether it's a cosmic order or whatever it is, all right? So, in the divine right of kings, you have this idea that God's king, and therefore you need to have a king, and or when you have, like, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, when you have, like, within uh, Eastern religions, you have some kind of idea of a balancing power, and... All these things, society is always looking to that kind of transcendent source in order to, uh, what, uh, I won't get too theoretical right now, but in order to justify social order, you always have to appeal to some kind of cosmic and immaterial realm. What Paul says is that before God, every person is equal. In other words, you want to talk about undermining any social order of oppression There's not a deeper and more profound way to do it than to say that all of reality is built upon the dignity of each and every person. And Paul does this. And Paul says it in Colossians 4.1. You have a master in heaven. You masters, you have a master in heaven, and you're also a slave just like them. You guys are both slaves. Welcome slaves, you slaves. You guys are both slaves. You kind of do that sometimes when you're disciplining children, right? You're both my children. You know, treat each other with respect. In Ephesians 6, where Paul also does the household codes, Paul writes, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way. In the same way as what? And if you go back in verse 5, chapter 6, with fear and respect. So, treat your slaves with fear and respect the same way? Then in verse 9, he adds, and don't, don't threaten them. Now, Seneca said, you always need to treat your slaves as enemies, you need to keep them under your thumb, you need to keep them afraid, you need to constantly keep them a little bit, you know, maybe some of you have been with people like that, right? They constantly keep you guessing. Paul says, oh no, masters, if you're a Christian master, don't you dare treat people like that. Don't you dare. And then in the book of Philemon, a whole book addressing the issue of slavery, Paul is dealing with Philemon, who's a runaway slave, and um Uh, He says to Philemon, I'm sorry, he's dealing with Onesimus, the runaway slave, and he says to Philemon to welcome back his runaway slave, not as a slave, but as a brother, as a brother. And then Paul says, and receive him as you would receive me. And then Paul reminds him, oh, by the way, you owe me everything. (laughs) So go ahead and receive him as you receive me. By the way, you owe me everything. So how does that undermine the relationship? Completely. Completely. So what does Paul do? He sets it up for failure. And, and when you look at what Paul calls for Christians to do, even within the more moderate form of Roman slavery, you see that Paul set it up for failure. And in fact, Paul succeeded. Paul had the long game. He succeeded. And, and eventually we see that slavery was eradicated. Now, Paul brings us into an atmosphere. Uh, as F.F. As F. Bruce says, that the institution of slavery had only one option, that was to wilt and to die. Now, you say, okay, yeah, uh, all right, that's good. I'm, I'm kind of following you a little bit. That's helpful background, thank you. Um, but then what do we do with the slavery in the Americas? What happened there? You know, when historians look at the slavery in the Americas, one of the things they notice is that the people that were at the forefront that were leading the charge against the slavery in America, they were pulling from the Bible, and they were. It wasn't. It wasn't secularists. It wasn't atheists. It wasn't. It, the, who was leading the charge? It was Quakers and evangelical Christians and Catholics that were reading their Bible and saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa." Historians, you know, when they look at uh, events, they see them differently. And, and when they actually read, you know, uh, historians and New Testament scholars, when they read Paul's uh, comments to the slaves and the masters, what gets them, of course, is what I already said, which is that he's addressing the slaves like they are, they're people and they have dignity. But also, what would have shocked the original audience is not just that the slaves are being addressed, but also that Paul is elevating the kind of menial work that slaves do. You see, the way in which you had hierarchical structure is you actually said there was work that was below any decent and dignified human being, and then you had work that was above. And Aristotle actually said that menial work is not for those who are noble. There are some people that are just born on the lower caste system. They're bon- and those people need to do the dirty work. And then there's those actually who are of noble birth, and they should never lift a finger. And that's the world that was, that's the Greco-Roman world, and that's how slavery was justified in their mind, is, well, there's just some people that are blue blood, and they should never, ever lift a finger. And what Paul, what would have shocked them is that Paul says that slaves can do their menial, dirty jobs to the glory of God in the name of Jesus. That would have shocked the original audience. And Paul comes along, and he says, yes, even the menial work, considered awful, scummy, inconsequential, yes, actually that can be dignified. That actually is a good thing. And Paul comes along and says that the work is dignified, and the notice the relationship, and the people are dignified. Once you dignify the work, you dignify the people, you dignify the people, you dignify the work. They're connected. They're super connected. So, the shocking thing for the original audience, would be Paul's unblushing affirmation of work. That's what we should be hearing in this text, that Paul is affirming the work of slaves. Where did Paul get this idea that work has such dignity? Where did he get that idea? All right, well, let's go to the Revelation. The Revelation. And we don't need to look far to figure out where Paul got this idea. Uh, If you open up your Bible... We read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, created, barah in Hebrew. That's the first verb in the Bible, and the first verb in the Bible is a, is a working verb. God is doing something. God is working. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary statement, okay? And then starting in verse 2, it begins how God did that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did, it, how did he do that? Well, the earth was formless, and void, or empty. Tohu wabohu in Hebrew. That's just the funnest little, you know, rhyme there in the Hebrew. It was formless and void. In other words, it was a big mess. There was, it, it, imagine a, when a tsunami goes through, you know how everything just just mixed together? You know, it's all, con, you know, if we were just to take, take, you know, our world and just, you know, put it in a blender. Sarah Madre just put him in a giant blender so that it's all messed up, okay? And then pour a lot of water on it so it's just a big soup. That's kind of the picture here. And so God, at the very beginning, is working. And what is he working with? He's working with a sewage spill, he's working with a watery mess. God, from the very beginning, is getting his hands dirty. And this is unique because gods in the ancient Near East do not get their hands dirty. We have a God that's already working. And then we see how God does it. So God's going to deal with the formlessness and the emptiness, so it needs to be formed and filled, and that's exactly what do- happens. God goes to work. And in that first chapter of Genesis, we see in days 1 to 3, God begins forming. He begins subduing the mess. He begins to, to, to start creating order, major boundaries. He separates the light from the darkness, because apparently it was this kind of like, is it dark? Is it light? Just kind of, he separates the light from the darkness. He separates... The, 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 the sky from the sea. He separates the dry land from the sea. And then, correspondingly, he fills it. The light he fills with the sun, the darkness he fills with the moon, the sky he fills with the birds, the sea he fills with the fish, and the dry land he fills with plants and land animals. And so God goes about forming and filling because it was unformed and unfilled. And then, lo and behold, God creates us. He creates us. And um, as, the, as the pinnacle. But one thing I want you to see here is, you know, we've been doing this. this I, there's a cohort of you, and I'm, I'm looking at some of you that are in this cohort for the last, uh, we're on week five now, uh, of us going through this faith and work curriculum through the Center for Faith and Work LA. It's been awesome. We're getting to know each other's jobs at a detailed level, and it's been really good uh, and, and inspiring. And to kind of think about what it means to live out our faith within our work and one of the exercises we did is we went through Genesis 1 and we tried to uh, look at what God was doing and give modern-day uh, jobs to, the, to, to name it. And some of the, some of the jobs that, were, that came up with that we see in Genesis 1 is God is working as an architect. God is working as a project manager. God is working as a construction, as a builder. God is working as a designer. God is working as an artist. God is, God is working uh, in, in terms of sewage cleanup. And I mean, think about just what a mess it was. God is working as an essential worker. I mean, we came up with these different titles. I think there was like thirty of them. I'm guaranteeing your job was in Genesis one. Okay, Um, I don't guarantee it, but pretty—you know—it was an amazing number of jobs. God is doing all these different kinds of things. God is working, and the reason why it's important for us to make that connection is oftentimes we just think of God's work as radically different from our work, but actually. It isn't. And the reason we know it isn't is because when God creates human beings, he then turns to mankind, and he does something. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Check this out. Fill the earth and form it. It's not form and fill, but now it's inverted, fill and form, which tells us something really cool. This is, this is one of the parts of the Bible. If you've been sleeping right now, just wake up. This is a really cool part. <laughs> this is a cool thing where God is saying, you are, I, just, I just formed and filled. I just stepped into this mess and I began forming and filling and now I've created you in my image. You're going to reflect me, but you're going to do it in a way that is both the same and different. And so it's, there's a resonance there, right? We fill and we form just like God. We don't have, the forming is a certain kind of forming. It's not quite the same as God's forming, but there's still a forming there. And the filling is a certain kind of filling, but it's not the same kind of filling because, you know, I mean, I'm not going to create a gazelle this week. I don't know about you, you know. Um, but, uh, but there's something that resonates. It's, it's, it's very similar. So we're made in God's image. And what this tells us is, is that we are made in God's image and we are made to work. We are made to work You know, when you throw somebody in prison and they're not allowed to work, that's a piece of their dignity that you are taking from from them. They are made in the image of God. We are made to work. That is part of who we are. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how work has come under the curse. It's not cursed, but it's come under the curse. Uh, But working is part of our humanity. It's built into our DNA. And by the way, when you see people who do not know God or reject God working, you know what you know? God put that impulse within them. You know, we need as a community of Christians to have not only a theology of difference from the world, but also a theology of commonness. And God made all human beings in His image, and He made them so they want to work. That is a reflection of God. Elizabeth Elliot, reflecting on Genesis 1 and God bringing order out of chaos, says... Whenever you clean your house, when you're wiping off the counters, when you're dusting, when you're mopping the floors, you might do it with this in mind, you are actually reflecting God. You're reflecting God in the simple things, the very simple things. And by the way, it's important to clean your house because if you don't, you will die. Either you can clean it or someone else needs to clean it, but hygiene, that's kind of, you know, I mean... I have a teenager, so I know how important these things are, okay? How long has this cup been in here, you know? uh, Yeah, it's important. It's important. And actually, um, that that is um, what God does. God creates a place where human life can be sustained, and that's what we're doing when we do simple tasks with hygiene. We are reflecting our Creator. All right. So we are made for work, and this is, by the way, confirmed throughout the Bible. You know, uh, God loves all kinds of work, uh, you know, and it's confirmed throughout the Bible. And in the Bible, we see throughout the biblical narrative that there's all kinds of work that God has people doing. Joseph was in politics. Daniel was a student. Boaz was a businessman. Lydia was a designer. Jesus came, and he was a carpenter. And then when God wants to bring Israel from exile to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, what does God do? Well, Who's He pull together? He pulls together Nehemiah, a civil engineer, and Zerubbabel, a, a politician, and Ezra, a priest. So God loves lots of different kinds of work. Um, in fact, uh, the book of Proverbs really is built on this assumption, all of these verses about sluggards in the book of Proverbs. You ever read the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament? It's built on the assumption that we were made to work and that when we are working well and working hard, we are reflecting, in many ways, our creator. And in fact, the person who ignores this aspect of the humanity is called a fool, which means they don't understand the fabric of reality. They're going against that fabric because God values all kinds of work. Now, we have partnered, we've partnered with a couple things here. We partnered with Center for Faith and Work, but we also have partnered with an organization called Made to Flourish. And in fact, they funded our pastoral residency program. Um, and they recently released a. Oh, that's the wrong. Let me go back. How do I go back? There we go. They recently released um, a, a video by Sho Baraka that expresses well the Bible's idea that God values all kinds of work. All kinds of work uh, values to God. So um, I'm going to ask for the powers that be to now play the video wherever you are.
1: Where are you? Maybe it's right where you need to be cultivation happens in your vocation, and the workers are few. You can be called, but first the caller must change you. I'm constantly encouraged by the missionaries I meet. For instance, Pam's a podiatrist, she has beautiful feet. Raheem is a boxer, he's beating the best, but his hardest fight is when he's daily fighting his flesh. I know a doctor, his name is Jason, he prays that the Lord keeps working on his patients. Sarah works in fashion, but she's no slave to the dollar. She's clothed in righteousness, whether white or blue collar. Jimmy is a fisherman, but he's found new purpose. He fishes for souls, but he calls it networking. Ling is a judge out in Las Vegas, but her favorite part of work is the cross-examination. Keisha owns a bakery with her husband, Ramon. They always tell their kids not to live off that bread alone. Keith plays basketball, and everywhere he goes, he has a defense for the faith while reaching for his goals. Theo is an officer, and this might sound crazy, He's the only cop i know who wakes up to die daily my cousin at the irs his name is thomas on many different levels he deals with false prophets cultivation happens in your vocation and the harvest is plenty you don't have to be an architect to build a better city
0: i love that you know it's just a simple uh reminder that god loves all kinds of work now you might say why are you beating that drum well because that, that understanding, not only was it not in place in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, and that's why Paul is elevating slaves' work, but it also was lost in the Middle Ages. And there was a rediscovery of this idea that all work matters to God at the Reformation. You know, uh, before uh, the Reformation, you had the medieval church, and the medieval church, which was based on Aristotle's teaching, created a separation between those who had work that really mattered, the priests, and the monks, they were, they were doing the real, the real spiritual work. And then you had just the average people, and they were a step down below, right? And, um, and then, when the Reformation happened, you had what was called the radical wing of the Reformation. And in the radical wing of the Reformation, they believed that the world was kind of like Satan's paradise, so the church needed to separate itself from the world. And if you had a job that kind of put you in the heart of the world, if you're, if you're working in politics or, you know, you're working in the government, something like that, that was not a good you know, job. Only work that mattered for the radical Reformation is um, the work that is… Um, Uh, basically uh, connected to the church. And so, these two responses, the Radical Reformation, which the church is apart from the world, gave us the idea that only some work matters, and the medieval understanding that, that the church is over the world also gave us the idea that only some work matters. But in the Reformation, something happened. In the Reformation, we actually have this idea, which was a middle way, which is the idea that the church needs to be in the world, We need to be engaged in the world. We don't separate from the world. We don't dominate the world, but that we are engaged in the world. And as a result, uh, you know, when you think of the Reformation, you think of two big ideas. One is uh, that salvation is by grace through faith, right? That's, that's That's one we all know. But the other one was the priesthood of believers, that every single person is actually operating as a priest, doing God's will in their vocation, uh, and this idea of the priesthood of believers was huge. It was the, it was the middle way. And Luther, in his address to the uh, Christian nobility, I gotta, you love that picture of Martin Luther, right? Somebody needs to paint a new picture of Luther. You go on, online to, like, find one, you're like, oh, man, this, this is one looks bad, this one looks bad. At least, you know, this is a little more serious. But Luther, in his address to the Christian nobility, says this, there has been a fiction by which the bishops and priests and pope and monk are called the spiritual estate, princes, lords, artisans, peasants, all those, all those other workers are just simply, simply doing temporal work. But all Christians are truly of the spiritual state, and there's no difference among them. And then he goes on to quote Peter. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, in book of Revelation, which says God has made us unto a kingdom of priests. Um, Paul is, uh, sorry. Luther is saying, don't say only people inside the church are doing God's work. We are all priests. We are all doing God's work. And then... This is really cool, and in Luther's exposition of Psalm 145, 16, where it says that God gives to all living things, all come feed from His hand, Luther asks, how does God feed all living things? How does God give us our daily bread? Does it just appear? Luther says, no, God uses the farmer and the milkmaid and the person who transports the food. And then in his exposition of Psalm 147, 13, where it says God strengthens the bars of the gates of the city, Luther asks, how does God give our city security? How does he give peace and stability? He could use angels, but he doesn't. God creates security through people. God creates security through laws that are upheld by lawyers, by good magistrates, by people who work in security. God uses security guards to bring security. And then Luther says this, what else is all of our work to God, whether in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in the government, but child performances? These are the masks of God through which he wants to conceal and give his gifts to us. This is revolutionary. When you start seeing the person that's helping you at Trader Joe's as one of the ways in which God is loving you, a mask by which God is providing for you, When you see the Amazon guy pull up, when you see the person serving you waiting on your table, when you see somebody who's doing your accountancy, someone who is working as a… These are the mass of God. This is how… I mean, God could just send a bunch of angels to provide for us, but God wants to use people. It was built into God's original plan. God loves to use work, and God loves to use our work. So what does this mean for us? Let's bring the horses into the stable. What does this mean for us? Um, Well, if our work matters to God, then once you start to digest that, your work takes on a whole new weightiness, a new kind of gravity. We begin to see our work through God's eyes. We begin to realize that if we are called to be a lawyer, then we do it not just for social status, not just for that, or not even for that, but for justice. You know, if you're going to be in the health profession, you do that in order to love and help people because you are a mask of God through which God is going to bring healing. If you are in business, God has given you that ability to generate money and to create a corporation so that you can bless people, so that you can provide stable work for people, so that you can be generous. When you realize that God is invested in your work, you realize that if you're a teacher, or a professor, God has put you there in order to give the gift of knowledge to others. And and if you're an artist, you realize that you're an artist not so that you can have people enter into your narcissistic dark hole in which you work all your childhood issues out in some kind of bizarre painting, (laughs) but so that you can illuminate the imagination through the visual. And you say, but what if I'm not those? What if I didn't get my dream career? Or what if COVID hit and I lost my job and, I, and I'm now waiting tables, I'm driving Uber, what then? You're still a mask of God. People need Ubers. I don't know where you've been. There's been times where I'm like, thank God for Uber. I would be up a creek. You know, thank God for people that just wipe tables and seats And thank God, because those jobs matter. They matter to God. The little jobs matter just as much as the big ones. God is no respecter of persons, no respecters. And so when we walk into an establishment and we see people that are doing quote-unquote menial jobs, we are sub-Christian when we look down on them. God doesn't look down on them. God doesn't look down on any of their work. God loves all kinds of work. And this is a discipline for us to constantly, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. Suddenly the world becomes enchanted when you realize God is constantly working through everyday people, even people that don't know him. That's called common grace. You don't need to love and know God in order to fulfill the cultural mandate. It's built in our DNA. It's part of the gift of God. So yeah, if you want to be a writer, an actor, a professor, an artist, and it's not your time, don't wait until it's your time to realize that God wants to use your work to bless other people. Don't wait for that. And then finally, um, maybe you're, you're thinking, well, uh, you know, I'm retired. So, how does this apply to me? Are you kidding me? Have you not met Ron Smith? Do you not know uh, Carol Henning? Like, there's so many retired people in this church. They are doing their greatest work right now. Ron Smith, one of, one of the things I love about him, I'm like, you're the hardest working man in Christendom, Ron. And he says to me, I just want to keep working until there's no gas in the tank and Jesus takes me home. Right? So our work is always dignified before God and valued for God. It doesn't matter where you're at. So we need to recognize that God is in disguise all around us all the time. All around us, all the time. And, it, you know, I was at Chick-fil-A the other day after preaching this, last night after preaching this sermon, i go, I need some Chick-fil-A. Some, some young girl comes to help me. I'm thinking, this is the mask of God. She was wearing a mask, too, so it kind of reminded me. <laughs> Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. What are the good gifts we're surrounded by? And how is God constantly, constantly given to us? Can we recognize God in disguise? God waiting our tables, God serving us? And do we recognize that we can be that same kind of gift to others when we do menial tasks, that we are being the mask of God in our childishness, right? Of course, God could do it far better, but in our childishness, as Luther says. So, may God help us not to look down at those who have menial tasks, those who get their hands dirty, May God help us to appreciate—I mean, this could have been a Mother's Day sermon, too, easily, right? Oh, moms, I mean, that's a—there's a lot of—you deal with a lot when you're a mom, right? This applies to so many different things. But here, let me just end with this. Let me just bring it together with this. Why is this so important? Okay, yeah, let's remember, you know, God loves all kinds of work. Let's remember—you know why this is so critical? If you don't see that God loves menial work, dirty work— work that we may not appreciate, you're going to miss the greatest story in the Bible. Because the greatest work of God was not when God threw the stars into space, not when God made the gazelle, when he created this amazing ecosystems, when he put together the amazing nature of the human body. No, the greatest work of God was when God stripped himself bare and took the form of a slave. It's the same word in the Greek, doulos, doulos. And he came down and he served us. He took our muck and our sinfulness and our dirtiness and he cleaned us up and he loved us. May God help us to see the beauty of what it means to serve in menial ways and then reflect the God who has served us in all of our neediness. The hymn writer writes, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and my everyday work in which I serve others. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes, because Jesus, you are all around us. Lord, you are giving us good gifts all the time, even from people that don't know you. Lord, may we have hearts of gratitude when people are serving us, when people are taking care of us. Lord, may we recognize that behind those good gifts, Lord, as a reflection of you, Lord, the true and greatest giver of all, who loves us in our neediness who is not too proud to come and to empty yourself and take the form of a slave and to pour yourself out for us so that we might be cleaned. Lord Jesus, you came and you did the back-breaking work. You've come already and you've cleaned up and made it so that we can be clean, Lord, if we only turn to you. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us everything. You've done everything that we need. Help us now, Lord, to work in a way that shows the deep and profound gratitude, which is the only proper response for all you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.